0: Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonino. On this episode, I am very happy to bring the conversation I had with Frank Putnam. Frank is a psychiatrist, researcher, clinician, and teacher on health effects of violence and abuse. He is the professor of clinical psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He has formerly been a professor of pediatrics and child psychiatry at Children's Hospital Medical Center, University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He's worked at the National Institute of Mental Health uh, Research Program in in, uh, Bethesda, Maryland, uh, where he's done many, many studies and a big longitudinal study. And he has typically focused on child and adolescent psychiatry, uh, but he has also been uh one of one of the experts on uh dissociative identity disorder formerly known as multiple personality disorder which is what we do talk about in the conversation although we don't emphasize it or focus on it as much um but we we do talk about his uh one of his major books that he's written which was absolutely fascinating i really really enjoyed it so um uh, we start the conversation by by talking about um you know, obviously his 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 background and many of the things that he has done and 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 how he has been uh, able to to kind of you know do some of this work on uh, uh, developmental uh, stages and and how we're, we have this really long longitudinal study to look at trauma uh, and and what that looks like through time. Uh, so it's fantastic, uh, but we mostly talk about his book. The Way We Are, How States of Mind Influence Our Identities, Personality, and Potential for Change. Uh, So we talk by defining what are states of being. We talk about the continuous self. Uh, We talk about states of being in infant and child development. We talk about different states and rapid cycling of bipolar disorders. We talk about how important memory is for the self. We talk about personality and the big five with self and states of being. We talk about... uh, how mental disorders uh, look like through a state model. Talk about the fragment itself and different types of therapy that try to um, uh, connect with that or work with that, I should say. We talk about t- trauma, PTSD, and yes, we do talk about disassociative identity disorder. Uh, we talk about psychedelics, peak experiences, and uh, many other topics. Um, Frank is a wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful human being. Uh, he is got one of the nicest personalities I've, I've talked to. I I really enjoyed my conversation with him a lot. He's obviously a absolute treasure trove of knowledge and information and wisdom. And, and really just listening to him was, was, uh, you know, a big honor in a lot of ways. Um, and I I really enjoyed our conversation and, and really, you know, kind of sharing our, our worlds, obviously, you know, he's in psychiatry, my world is in clinical psych. And so really having a, a nice conversation about some of the clinical things, but also uh, trying to understand this idea about what it means to be human, what it means about personality, what it means about ways that we can change. And, and I, uh, I really found a lot of value in this conversation personally. And um, I think it's uh, something for everybody in the, in the conversation. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all past and upcoming conversations at dialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, follow, share with your friends, engage. Uh, you can do the same at YouTube. And uh, now I bring you Frank Putnam. I am here with Frank Putnam. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, to talking with you.
1: I'm um, a pleasure to be here.
0: Of course. Yeah. So, um, you, uh, you have written uh, a wonderful book. Really, really good. I, I enjoyed reading it. Uh, the book is called The Way We Are How States of Mind Influence Our Identities, Personality, and Potential for Change. I know it's a few years old now. I know you've written a bunch of other things as well. So, maybe just kind of give us your uh, potted biography professionally, just kind of what your background's in. Uh, some of the stuff you've written on, and uh, anything most current or recent that you've been thinking about.
1: Okay, well, I'm um, I think of myself as a child abuse psychiatrist in the sense that I have been working in the area of child maltreatment for um, 30. <laughs> probably close to 40 years. And um, that brings you in contact with a lot of different kinds of things, including uh, starting out with dissociative disorders. That's kind of how I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, so my undergrad was Wesleyan University, I went to uh MD PhD program at Indiana University, nice. then went to do a residency at Yale. And following the residency at Yale, I went to NIH uh, yeah. for a clinical fellowship. And there's where I encountered really my first case of not actually not, because I had seen other cases I just didn't recognize. The disorder, DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, until uh, I sort of thought my third case or so at the NIMH. And there I began to study. Dissociation in the context of really working with bipolar disorder. I think it was very important because there I was seeing another group of patients who were rapidly changing state. And that got my interest in states and states of consciousness going. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also got very interested in the effects of child maltreatment on on the development of self and personality. Mm -hmm. And um, so after 20 years at NIMH, I went off to run a um, child maltreatment program that had both clinical parts of it, forensic parts, but a lot of research also. And um, there's where I really looked at a lot of the effects of child maltreatment on the developing child, including a lot of endocrine problems, uh, a lot of cognitive issues. Uh, We're actually now looking at a lot of genetic changes, epigenetic changes, In our sample. So I've been working in that area for uh, 35, 40 years. My major study started 35 years ago and still goes on. Um, So I went from childhood with these individuals, about 200 individuals, to um, about half maltreated. Uh, sexual abuse, girls. All of them were female, and two now there. Many of them are grandmothers, and wow. we're looking at their. Yeah. We've looked at their children, and we're looking at them, and we actually spent a lot of time with their mothers. So we have three generations. So wow. that's led to my doing a lot of policy work, yeah. uh, spending some time testifying to legislatures and government, and about various kinds of models. Uh, for treatment and intervention. Mm. So that's kind of my career in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, that's that's quite the story career. That's that's fantastic, especially having a big longitudinal study different cohorts. Uh, that's that's fantastic. That's that's great. Um so you you've uh, you've written this book. I know you've written some other things, but we talked about uh, the way we are mostly. Um I guess so you you're you're, you're in this book uh, positing a kind of framework, I guess, is how I, I see it, of these states of being. Um, so could you, could you tell us about um, states, I guess, of being? Many people will think about, you can, you can look at philosophy and ontology in terms of being and essence and things like that. You can also look at uh, kind of maybe more in the clinical world. We look at traits and states and things like that. So how do you mean uh, various uh, states of being and, and states of mind and I guess how they're similar and different?
1: Okay, well, let's say you're always in one some state or other mm-hmm. okay and and the the idea of state is very ubiquitous and used in many different ways and and it's it's kind of very confusing and I'm very interested in sort of really taking it down and looking at what exactly is a state. And that means looking across a whole variety of states, whether you're looking at drug-induced states or dissociative states or depressive states or mania states or anxiety states or, you know, um, epiphanies. All There are all sorts of states. And I'm interested in extracting what are the state principles that define a state. And so, you know, definitions are always tough. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> where well, I go. I went and searched for my definitions, and what did I say? Okay, here we go. The concept of a state of mind, mental state, state of being, is a transient, multidimensional mental configuration of variables that shapes mood, perception, cognition, memory, physiology, and behavior, and is frequently associated with a sense of, aura, of identity, mm. basically. And um, that's drawn from looking at a variety of different kinds of states. Mind And particularly this idea of multidimensionality, that over and over again, as I look at the data, what you see is states are defined as sort of clusters of variables. And some of those variables are cognitive, some of them are physiological uh, kinds of variables. But they're sort of discrete spaces or discrete points, mostly kind of fuzzy little balls if you actually plot the data, but they occupy areas of state space that are quite unique
0: and um Hmm. this is really interesting i I like how you define that something i want to flag now so i can remind myself to get to it later is you know if we're always in a certain type of state state of being or state of mind i guess the question i have is how do we have a kind of continuous self Right. In terms of identity. Again, I, I know you, we, we'll probably get to that later, but if you want to kind of just flag it here, Alana, I, I had a conversation recently, recently with a, a social psychologist uh, out in, uh, I believe, Stanford. I might be wrong on that. Uh, Brian Lowry, he's, he's 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 great. We had a wonderful conversation. We had two conversations actually about this. And, you know, he he thinks the self is all social construction. Right. But he, he just goes all the way with it. Right. Which I, I give him a lot of credit for doing because he just. You know, he, he makes the claim and then he, he said, well, explain it. You know, what's the what's the continuous self? Like, how is it? What's there? You know, if there's nobody in the in the car and pulling the levers and driving the ship. Well, well, what is it? Right. There's no self in there. You know, so I guess for, for you and, and your framework, how do you understand kind of if we're in different states, uh, how that connects with self and identity? And, and is there a, a continuity of, of a person of an identity or of a self? Uh, even with different different states?
1: Well, yes. I mean, this is exactly the issue, which is how do you go from all these different states to something that seems like a relatively smooth operating personality right. mm-hmm. or, or a sense of self. So in my kind of definition, I think of states as being sort of unique transient kinds of configurations that move from one to another. I think of personality as being the integration of those but also the exterior the external experience by other people of you mm-hmm. and self as being sort of your internal experience of yourself mm-hmm. that is so that a personality and the, you can see point in many cases where there people have what appears to be this kind of personality but have a very different sense of themselves than mm-hmm. people might think of them. They might say well you'd never do that uh, or whatever. But it's um so self is really the internal experience of yourself, which may be more fragmented than people on the outside experience. And personality is really that social thing that everybody sees that they think of as you. Mm. And um, states are what goes into all of that. And the issue is, has how do you get that integration? Mm -hmm. How do you bring those states together to make sort of a continuum or more or less a continuum? I think the issue is that nobody's got that down perfectly. Nobody sort of smoothly slides from state to state to state, always remembering what they just did or said or whatever. And that has to do with a series of kind of cognitive structures that we find over and over again, depending kind of on your discipline. So mm-hmm. if you're a developmental psychologist, you call this executive functions. Right. If you're a cognitive psychologist, you call it metacognition. Mm-hmm. If you're a dynamic therapist, you call it the observing ego. It's, <laughs> okay. it's, it's something right. that helps you look at yourself as you are Brings in memories from one state to another, uh, helps you have that with that continuity, mm-hmm. and um, if and therein lies certainly opportunities for kind of pathology or disorder. Uh, if you have failures to do that and in particular the dissociative patients i work with that's one of their major failures is they have not integrated these states in fact they've actually heightened the individuality of those states and that's why you get these identity states that sort of see themselves as different people um but we see identity fragmentation and other disorders um Does that make sense?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I was I was curious as you were talking about is where do you see is I guess the role of the body. Now I think some people may overemphasize the body, uh, but a lot of people may underemphasize the body, or still this kind of strange duality of sorts of like you know mind body thing, or like the brain is here and the rest of the body is you know different. I guess how do you see in terms of that integration of all of these different states the Centrality or or not, uh, uh, of the physical body and and how that is kind of connected with with everything, um, you know, with with our you know uh, central nervous system and peripheral nervous system, etc. What's the centrality, I guess, of the body for you, or or, or not?
1: Well, uh, um, that's why I like the term states of being because it sort of encompasses the mind and body, sort of thing. Um, now I, there is. I certainly have a pathway from states to kind of the body and um, that goes through the kind of microstates all the way to identity states to sort of personality mm. in that sense um, that, that goes on. That um, the, the I think there is actually the issue of it, duality can sort of be taken apart in little chunks. Mm. You know, it's often presented as if it's either or but if you go from microstates to basically sort of brain states to identity states to personality you begin to see how the biology can move into uh, a state of mind mm,
0: mm, mm. yeah it's, it's it's interesting how in trying to understand things like self or identity or even some of the work that's done now with consciousness we still kind of keep coming back to some of the ways and how things continuously integrate how there is continuity how you know whether the body is there how much and to what extent i guess the the question here i I have is about uh how this all kind of uh (laughs) of sorts of what's kind of the the origin story here right so you you talk about in the book uh various stuff that many people may be familiar with um such as uh there's much uh, research that's been done on uh, infant development, uh, sort of uh, the critical stages, sensitive periods, attunement, attachment, things like that. I guess, in just briefly, in terms of how we get states of being, the, the big question I have here is is that always just the case since birth that we're going through these different states? Or is it something that is a kind of developmental thing, that as we get older, these are longer periods, or this is where we see more abnormalities, or how do we see it in terms of a, of a developmental framework of how states of, of being kind of uh, uh, come online, if you will?
1: Okay, so um, states are detectable even in utero. Okay, and and many a mother will tell you, you know, it's the baby's quiet now, the baby's moving around now. Uh, we can document that on on ultrasound. So even the fetus is showing distinct states, over, say the, over the course of a day. And when a child is born, a healthy, normal child, um, neurotypical, as they say, um, is. Um, Generally, has a number of very distinct states that can be coded, and they're uh, discriminated by things like a uh, heart rate and respiration, EEG, uh, eyes open, uh, vocalizations—a uh, variety of external objective signs you can use to sort of pot that multidimensional part of kind of putting the state in this piece of state space or that piece of state space. Um, and so states are always there. Um, there have been pretty well studied in infants and they actually, um, a number of sort of interventions for infants, for example, helping mothers get infants to breastfeed uh, is uh, built around recognizing what infant, what state the infant is in, and can that infant latch on and helping the infant acquire the latch state help? You know, so so it's there from birth mm. on. Now, states change over development. Mm. I mean, that's one of the things that goes on. And we see evidence of that change in things like attention span, yeah. ability to recover from disruptions of state, uh, th- those sorts of things. So there are markers the problem is, after about age three, states get difficult to study because oh. you got this kid running all over the place, <laughs> and you know. So you uh, up to about age three, there's pretty good data actually on infant states, and to the point where there are actually useful interventions uh, in that. And we don't. We can see that again at different points in development. But again, another really big place where states kind of emerge. Uh, in uh, behavior is in adolescence. And that's when you start seeing what's called the identity crisis. And you see adolescents who are different with different contexts or different groups of friends. You know, I'm this way with my, this group of friends. I like, go uh, with that group of friends. I'm very different. And here, which one is the real me? And um, that's part of this infant. Uh, you can see that process going on. Um, and I think adults can recognize states in themselves that they often make very conscious transitions, like you're going from your work state to home state, sitting in the car, listening to the radio turned wide up, open or something like that. People have various kinds of techniques for eliciting states that they think are gonna be appropriate or they wanna to go to, whether it's a cocktail or mm. a run or whatever um, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So they're always there. People have sets of states. They're more or less integrated. Uh, and um, we can look at a number of pathologies and say, these there are disorders where this integration breaks down whether the mechanisms for changing states uh are aberrant there's people get stuck in states or they have slippery states and they can't maintain a particular state in a situation um whether there's metacognitive issues they can't take what they know from one context and move it to another context, those sorts of things um
0: I guess the the question I have there is real quick is is kind of i guess sort of a footnote is. I mean, obviously, there's a much ado that's made with, uh, you know, how much of genetic involvement is here uh, for for everything for for us as humans. And then obviously, there's the uh, environmental and cultural context and socialization and things like that. So there's all of these different ways, I guess, in infants in the beginning, how much is, I don't want to say innate, because people read that as genetic or something else, but I guess, where do we see, I guess, kind of at the bits and pieces of it, what's contributing to kind of these states? Is it just all of it, you know, certain you know, things with the, the mother, things in environment, um, and then maybe some of those, such as socialization, might have uh, a larger uh, role to play in, you know, middle childhood, late childhood. But I guess, what do you think are the kind of components of uh, various states that are there?
1: Well, the infant stuff has been, as I said, fairly well delineated and the uh, sort of newborn infant has basically about five states. Two of them are sleep. One is regular sleep and one is sort of irregular sleep. And then there's a state called alert inactivity where the infant is um, awake awake. Uh, but is not moving around very much, and then there's a, a waking activity uh, kind of thing, and then crying is actually defined as in these models as a distinct state uh, based on kind of vocalization. but you see the blood pressure changes, you see the heart rate changes, and kind of an alert activity sorts of state and the infant is cycling through these on about two hours, mm. okay, and we know that as sort of the normal infant sleep wake cycle. Mm. Now something comes along and disrupts that cycle. Uh, they wet their diaper. They're hungry. Then that's the role of the caretaker comes in and attends to the problem and provides soothing and often resets that model uh, so that it's it's going on. And as you develop, more states are added and sort of more pathways among those states are added. Mm-hmm. Uh, kinds of things. So the caretakers are extremely important. And what we see in some some disorders is that where there's been severe attachment problems, the people tend to go into uh, dissociative states. There's very strong correlation, remarkably, actually, like 50% of the variance over 18 years is explained by the issues of uh, a poor attachment in in two studies, uh, and it's those are hard studies to do because you yeah, have of course,
0: to of you know,
1: measure the attachment when they're eighteen months or something, mm-hmm. and measure it again when they're eighteen years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, yeah. No, that's that's, that's I, I definitely. Fascinating. I want to ask you uh, about some of the DID stuff and 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 um, and a few other things. Um, but I guess before that bit of it, it sounds like there's these cycles as you're talking about in infants, which are kind of well established. But there, it, uh, is there a kind of um, I don't want to say a mirroring of sorts? But there's also the sleep cycles we know about our sleep stages. So when we are yes. unconscious, right? So I guess talk about how. About 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 sleep and how you understand that as different states as well, whether you can go into REM sleep or non-REM sleep or, um, but just the a, a typical, uh, you know, four or five adult sleep stages.
1: Exactly. Well, this is actually the example I use a lot because pretty much everybody knows about sleep, mm-hmm. and you know, for years and years and years, sleep was regarded as you were asleep or you're awake, as a unified state, and then in the 50s and 60s. He had people like William Dement who began to break it down into what they called stages, and um, what we see in the regular sleep at night in somebody who's healthy is, in fact, the cycling through these stages three or four or five times. Uh, where they where they go from uh, you know awake to drowsiness into stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four in the REM, often a little awakening after REM, and then reset the whole thing and and uh, with some lengthening of the REM cycle over the course of the night. And so this is one of the. Uh, of principles here is that sleep is a state but it's made up of substates uh, which are those and each of those is sort of physiologically distinct so that you can measure the differences and actually make on an instrument uh, and basically say this person is in stage three or stage four or whatever kind of thing so you see that in lots of different things it's just very distinctive in, in sleep, which is a normal a normal state now. Again, when we have pathology, you can have difficulty sl- you know, switching into sleep, or you can have problems with narcolepsy, where people fall asleep when they're not supposed to fall asleep. You see these sort of levels of pathology, whether it's the states or whether it's the mechanisms that switch them into states, whether or whether they're to some extent dysfunctional ways attempting to deal with that. I mean, I, I see a certain amount of uh, ma- substance abuse as really maladaptive attempts to manipulate state. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: it's, it's interesting how there's, there's this, we have these kind of cycles as you will, these states, whether we're conscious or unconscious, uh, willing or unwillingly. Um, I guess, Kind of like what you were saying in the beginning, it was, I'm curious. We can we can talk about two things here before we go back to the the part on the self. Is one thing you talk about in the book and in various places, but you talk about uh kind of the the rapid cycling scene in uh states um with people that have bipolar. Now, I, I'm a little fuzzy on this. Um, I don't know if if still in the clinical literature, we still use rapid cycling as a as a term. I know that was on the old DSM four. Uh, in my clinical work, we used it when I was you know uh, in training, but I, I don't hear it used as much anymore. But either way, there are for listeners, rapid cycling is this thing for folks that have um, uh, bipolar as a. As the 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 shortening of the interval between a manic or hypomanic and a depressive episode, so that the the point of um, uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? refractionary kind of period of sorts is is lessened, so that way basically you're having uh, your return to baseline, whatever that may be, is shortened and shortened and shortened as you're more continuing to cycle through mania, hypomania, or, or depression, and so in terms of where we see abnormalities, if you will, or dysfunction, if you will, in states, such as in in this example with bipolar, what does that tell us about folks that are switching states too fast or where it's dysregulating their kind of homeostatic kind of way of interacting with, you know, others or or themselves in the world?
1: Right. So what I, I was on a unit for three years that sort of collected and studied Rapid cyclers and rapid cycling, in the sense of they switch back and forth between mania and depression, often over a period of a few days. Mm-hmm. So, bang, 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 mm-hmm. like, like that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the things that convinced me was that it was possible to go from being profoundly depressed to being manic in the blink of an eye um and which said that you don't have to make this very slow journey out of depression mm-hmm. uh, for example to get out of the depressive state mm-hmm. and which is of course composed of all sorts of substates if you if you think about it that way um and i think that's what we're starting to actually see with some of the new interventions like the rtms and some of the new drugs, like the ketamine, where and yeah. some of these infusions, which is that you don't have to wait six weeks for the drug to kick in. You can actually change people's state uh, within 48 hours or 24 hours or something like that. So it says that that possibility is there um to, to really kind of kick out of states. The question is, what do you take the person from to where do they go and Mm. uh when we were doing it it was always difficult control we could get them out of um depression but bang they could go into mania Mm -hmm. and um which wasn't very helpful so And, and you see that with some drugs, some of the antidepressant drugs, all of a sudden kick people into mania. Yeah, so, right. so, and there's a case where there's kind of an instability in the switch mechanism and kicks them into another spot of state space. Mm. So that that's what um, really impressed me. Plus, looking at things like panic attacks, you know, panic attack is a state uh, comes on very quickly. Very consuming experience, very unpleasant experience for people. It usually um, fades over time, so it usually decreases so they feel less and less panic. So you may have a very quick onset, within a minute or so, and it may take, you know, 20 minutes or something to sort of run its course. And that, you know, identifies a different principle or a principle that's worth sort of bringing out here, which is the way into a state. Is different than the way out of it mm. um, and uh, if you look at switches between state a to state b it's different than state b to state a and the mm. example i often use is sleeping waking and, and falling asleep that you that you fall asleep differently than you wake up typically mm. people wake up being uh, and um they may take a while to fall asleep with mm. a couple of you know, slipping in and a couple of myoclonic jerks, kind of thing. So um, the way in and the way out is, is different usually.
0: So you know, one thing that's coming to mind here when you're talking about this, which will 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 kind of dovetail into my next question, which is: so is there a kind of ceiling? Again, that would be different, I would assume, for different folks. But is there a ceiling on how many states someone can be in? And second to that is when we're talking about states. This isn't just affect or mood or anything. It might be an encompassed within that, or or mood or affect might be encompassed in that. But you're, we're talking about state in a more kind of global sense or the kind of gestalt of where the person is at, not just this is a change in mood or affect or or something like that. So I guess, you know, how many... You know, is it, is it kind of an infinite number of possibilities kind of thing? Or do people kind of have like a kind of nucleus of sorts of like the kind of major states they kind of go in and out of maybe differently? But to, how do we, from the literature that we know, how does it usually present for different folks?
1: Okay, so um, first of all, I'd say affect is sometimes a marker for a state so you know extreme affects can be whether it's like anger or sorrow mm. or something so so often states are named by kind of the predominant dimension mm-hmm. so if the dimension's affective the dimension is motoric it might be catatonia mm. you know so so um the so the states are named differently but but they, you know, all have this stateness quality to them mm. uh, as I um, talk uh, talk about it. Um, so can you have infinite number of states? I guess maybe. I mean, I think of this idea of state space, that you've got kind of a range of uh, variables, and that you a state is sort of a uh, kind of a fuzzy point in that, because the states kind of wax and wane over time uh, as a sort of build themselves up and as they let themselves, as they sort of dissipate uh, and bleed into the next state kind of thing. But generally, um, people have states that are related to context, and we're talking about normal, Mm -hmm. neurotypical kind of stuff. Um so you might have a set of states that go with work or you might have a set of states that that go with uh going out on a date or you know being with uh kind of things so you would you would have kind of clusters of states uh that go and every once in a while maybe something would expand your states you would do something that you'd never done before and you'd have new states that you'd never experienced before um, kind of thing. And I think there's a drive to do that. I mean, you see that in children, uh, this idea of, you know, hanging upside down or twirling around on the swing or, you know, getting dizzy. They're they are kind of exploring different states and doing that. Mm. Um, and so there's sort of a drive in many people to try something new, do something different mm. um, and explore new states.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's... No, I like the way you explain it because it it does kind of give almost like there's these scripts or or schemas of of how we we you know what, what there's a state of being, you know, in a particular environment or context with certain people, which, you know, it's obviously going to look different for for each person. But it's interesting to see that variance of of how it presents. I want to go back to the idea of the self, uh, which we were talking about. So. One thing about that that you bring up in the in the in the book, which i want to I really want to ask you about, is how much of our identity and sense of self is connected to the memory of ourselves, right? I think there's this interesting thing about how we know who we are based on the memories of how things are, like what does it mean to be me? Well, I have to usually go in my mental rolodex and and you know think, I mean, I don't do this all the time, but I'll think about like when i was 5 and 15 and 25 and 30 and and i i'm i'm going in my memory bank to say like oh i have this memory of myself whether it's accurate or not isn't it? <laughs> but there's this idea of these memories how how much is uh, there's there's it's a hard objective subjective kind of you know uh uh, uh claims here but The general question is how much of our memory of ourselves is important for identity and how we understand our sense of self and our continuity?
1: I I think it's very important. Um, uh, kind of thing, and the issue of continuity is extremely important, and that comes back to this issue of integration yeah. across states. And to how good are your met- metacognitive functions at taking information and memories from one state and making them available in other states? And so you see pathology again expressed by failures here in the sort of extreme cases, DID, where. The individual doesn't have that continuity across states, uh, often has these protracted amnesias, for example, and so doesn't remember behavior that they engaged in, doesn't remember sort of how they acted. Um, And so you have that kind of fragmentation of identity or fragmentation. Of self, uh, And you see that not just in DID, you see it really in bipolar disorder where people, yeah. have, mm-hmm. they're very different in the depressed state than they are in the, the manic yeah. state. If you ask them to tell you about themselves when they're manic, they're going to tell you one whole set of their wonders. And you tell them, ask you them during the same question when they're depressed and, you know, they're worthless. Uh, so they have very different senses of self in those different states.
0: So I guess the, the question there is, is that for amnestic patients, right, people that have various amnesias, especially for uh, long-term memory, it, I guess it's not, it, it's, it's not that they don't have a self, they just can't remember what that is. Is, is that, or, and we'll talk about trauma in a minute, but is that, is, is the empirical claim that there is still the self that is there and that has continuity? that almost doesn't matter if you can't remember it and access it and integrate it well. Or is that too much of a value judgment that I'm placing there. What what do you think about
1: it? No, well I this? think the I mean the issue is how well is yourself integrated. If you have a fragmented self mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. you, that you find yourself whichever way the wind blows you go, kind of thing, uh that's one sense of self. Well you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. You know, I have to wait till I get there kind of thing. Whereas other people would have that sort of guiding principle, I know if I got to this situation, this is what I would do. Um, Some people don't have a lot of control over that self part, you know, how they're going to behave or act or something. They really sort of find themselves doing things. They don't really know why they did them or how they did them. Uh, They may have very fuzzy memories of what they did uh, kind of thing, or they may not remember at all. Uh, The memories are there. You just have to access them and and you can access them through truth serum amytol you can access them through hypnosis you can access them through uh therapy there's a, a number of ways to get to that uh some but the degree of integration is is the, the feature there and so there are a lot of people who don't know who they are mm-hmm. because they're everything they're, they're whatever the situation demands mm-hmm. they're kind of chameleon like um and that's their sense of themselves is they can't count on themselves because they don't know what part of them is going to show up mm-hmm.
0: so where does i guess for you personality and temperament fit in here you talk about in the book and how that is you know similar overlaps or divorce from the self and the identity you can talk about big five if you want here i mean i've talked about big five <laughs> personality model here i mean i've talked about it on the podcast so I mean, how do you see it as incomplete or not enough or – and maybe just kind of give the kind of state model of of personality and and how that commiserates or not.
1: All right. So, um, you know, I knew we'd get to the big five.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're Uh, not a fan.
1: Uh, actually, I, I think the Big Five uh, does its job for what it does, um, and, and that it's a, a valid way to look at things. You know, it sort of tells you where you are now, you're this dimensional model, you've got these scores on these different dimensions, and this is kind of who you are, and it's relatively predictive of, you know, are you trustworthy, are you open to experience? How agreeable are you? Are you neurotic? Mm-hmm. You know, those sorts of things. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tell you how you got there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sort, sure. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you've got developmental models that are very much kind of caretaker based in terms of things like attachment and attunement and and learning to internalize or interject those things like uh, self-soothing behaviors and recovering from states and figuring out what state's the appropriate state to bring out in a particular situation like your being taken to church well how do you behave in church versus how do you behave in at the stadium with your dad who's you know rabid fan or whatever you know you've got you've got these very different sort of institutional expectations of what state you should be in uh so um th- those are and then there's dynamic models which i don't find much you know, support for, but, you know, people are into Oedipal complexes and things like that. Um, but I think uh, th- that the state model basically says, you know, you, it's got the developmental piece, your caretaker has a lot to do with um, sort of your ability to integrate across states and your ability to access information i mean early on it's the caretaker who says remember what we learned at at grandma's let's practice that here you know so you know oh i take what i learned in grandma's and i bring it to this particular context and and so uh help, helps you with that um uh, situation but uh you know, you know there was another part to your question but we'll get there I guess.
0: yeah 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 no no absolutely yes. So I guess with, with there's these ideas about the self that you've kind of covered the states of being. Um, so I guess now where where does it when when does it go wrong when we have you know pathology or disorders or dysfunction? Kind of give us the I guess the overview of how the model works for understanding various uh uh, uh disorders or or certain states of pathology. And then we can talk about uh, trauma and and, um, uh, DID.
1: Okay. So I would stress that I don't think that all mental health problems can be explained through a state model. But I think there are some that it provides a valuable insight into things like bipolar disorder, anxiety, panic attacks, uh, catatonia, dissociative identity disorder, um, things, those sorts of, that are characterized by people getting caught in different states that are dysfunctional. So I kind of identify about five levels at which there is pathology or could be pathology in the state model. And again, which we could do interventions at those levels, depending. And so the first is the states per se. You could have depression, anxiety, dissociation, panic, anger, difficulties, protracted grief, paranoia. And we often seek to disrupt those states. We seek to break the depressive state kind of thing to to, um, maybe substitute another state for that. And then there's disruption of those state cycles like we've talked about a little bit, which um, it may involve people having kind of being stuck in a state like depression or having difficulty staying constantly in a state and having flipping back and forth like the bipolar, rapid cycling, bipolar um, and and there, we did a lot of work on uh, circadian cycles with, with these individuals and sort of reestablishing that. For example, many of the depressed patients are very seriously uh, lagged in a sense. They have a day-night reversal often. So they're up all night and they're asleep during the day kind of thing. And so you walk them around the clock and get them back in tune, and that often helps uh, restore. So, dysregulation of the state cycles, mm-hmm. a switching problem, that some people are easily sent over the edge, that they have a very sort of easily triggered switch mechanism. So you may have to work on that in terms of sensitivity or desensitizing them in some fashion, uh, or maybe they're prone to rumination and you have to kind of break that up. Um, So you can have a sort of slippery switch mechanism or a stuck switch mechanism. And then there's this metacognitive failure to integrate across states, which leads to Mm. problems with the fragmentation uh, of the sense of self in the sense that you can't trust yourself. You don't know who's going to show up Mm. uh, at that situation. You can't often use what you've learned. So people say, I knew that. I just I couldn't get to it Mm. uh, kind of thing. So you may have that information, but it's not useful to you because you're in a state where you can't access that information uh, kind of thing. So that's something that therapy is actually pretty good at, in terms of helping people learn to to get to what and use what they know. And then there's kind of the maladaptive attempt to manipulate states. So taking drugs. Now often you hear from many of these people, when I take drugs, that's the first time I feel normal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, kind of thing. So that that that's often part of that self-medication process is that it really helps them maybe stabilize the state or deal with some of the kinds of things that are disruptive for, for the states. And then ultimately what I'd call aberrant state architectures, that your series of cycles and moving among those cycles is somehow messed up. And um you know that may be day-night reversal in some ways or things like narcolepsy mm-hmm. so each of those is kind of a level where this model can go wrong and produce a problem but we also have interventions that work at many of these levels we just don't have an integrated model of using these interventions uh, consistently people tend to go after one level or another level uh, you know they're going to give them a mood stabilizer but we're not going to do with the integration stuff or those sorts of things
0: Yeah, so what when you're talking about the fragment itself, um, of course I'm going to think of Heinz Kohut. I'm going to think of even some Carl Rogers. You know, as a kind of so there's a lot of um, you know. So for listeners, Heinz Kohut is the the uh, self psychology, which is kind of a contemporary psychodynamic uh, theoretical model for therapeutic treatment, kind of a updated, uh, more well rounded. Using a, a different model of how we understand narcissism for kind of uh, well, modern now, but I mean compared to Freud, so he was kind of doing this renaissance of Freud, but with just all the updates and all the things and his own stuff. and the fragment itself was a was a huge component for his his theory, and that's where he comes up with the idea of the the tripart model, which is you know the mirroring and the idealized imago and the twinship and all that stuff, which is rooted in some attachment stuff and out of object relations. And Carl Rogers is obviously within the existential humanist um, uh, theoretical uh, model with his person centered. Um, And most people will know about kind of the, you know, uh, unconditional positive regard and um, many of the other, you know, empathy, his other uh, kind of therapeutic tenets. But his actual theory was pretty – Thoughtful. it was it was deep and thoughtful in some way whether you subscribe to it or not so anyways all that to say there have i guess been i don't know about currently but uh kind of the kind of flagship i guess therapeutic uh theoretical frameworks uh have tried to use this idea of the fragment itself in uh, a psychotherapy kind of uh, framework to try and fix it (laughs) to try and and to try or to manage it. Uh, There have been attempts at least of of doing that. I guess for you, whether it's those that I've just kind of uh, mentioned or others, how do you feel about advancements as opposed to just saying, oh, here's a mood stabilizer and, you know, there you go. How do you feel about other types of therapies or whatever that have tried to, I guess, correct for that or manage or augment some of the fragmented uh, states of self?
1: Well, I think that's very important, and and that's um, much of what the kind of therapy you use with really fragmented people, whether it's you know um, the DID kinds of things, or um, you know some of the blocking on the very good therapy that's used often with bipolar's uh, from Lenahan. Lin- 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 oh,
0: yeah, DBT. Um,
1: yeah, and uh, yes and um it's 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 really um i think re, the mood stabilizer may help a little bit as do the anti anxiety and antidepressants but that that doesn't fix the problem it just kind of intervenes at this particular level right. um so right. i'm you know a, a relatively big fan of therapy yeah. um, that
0: that's usually how i explain it as well as i say you know sometimes people need meds and meds is good cuz it helps you know kind of kind of clear the blockage of sorts. So it doesn't, it doesn't flood you. It doesn't overwhelm you to because you can't really do work in kind of your standard talk therapy. Uh if you're too too overwhelmed or too flooded with all of the the symptoms there. So you kind of turns the volume down a little bit, kind of clears out the fogginess, and then you're able to kind of do some of the more uh you know deeper work and try to try to at least manage and or um correct for something. So I I we're we're in full agreement there.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, but I work with a lot with kids, mm-hmm. and, and I don't give drugs to kids by and large. Uh, so we do this with other kinds of interventions uh, with mm. the kids that have a lot of but you know positive regard and and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that but also safety and security mm-hmm. depends a lot on the on the age of the child but those are the things that we would see as being extremely helpful in dealing with some of these these kinds of issues in in the mm-hmm. children mm-hmm.
0: yeah so i i i totally i totally agree so i, I want to ask kind of from that as a jumping off point because you've laid the kind of groundwork there so let's talk about uh i guess trauma there's the 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 latest uh, bible definition dsm5 tr now uh has criteria for ptsd of course we know trauma is um definitely not just ptsd or acute stress there's you know just obviously different models um obviously we we both know uh, uh judith uh and and uh, in her work uh so i guess w- what is your understanding of how to conceptualize trauma um, within a kind of a uh, scene as almost as a state disorder of sorts
1: yeah well if you think about trauma it it often evokes a p- profound state if you think you're about to die this is an extremely powerful state to be in uh if you are continuously being maltreated it, it's a state that you see the maltreatment coming usually um, and, and so often you switch into a state that's able to sort of tolerate that maltreatment uh, uh, process. Um, I think the, the DSM. I, I have a lot of issues with DSM.
0: Uh, jo- Join the club. Join the club.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, although if you look at most versions, somewhere my name appears in there. Usually as a reader, or sometimes on a committee or something, but that's an attempt to make it better.
0: There you go. There you go.
1: You know, <laughs> uh, it's uh, one of the things I do is I show the um, residents, for example. I have I, I started my training in the year of DSM two, or in the era of DSM two. was uh, DSM two is a hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Okay, DSM five tr is a thousand pages.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's it's ever growing. We're going to need to have two volumes in the next one.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, um, it's sort of slowly getting things right. In my sense, uh, as uh, I think one of the for me, one of the major things was the recognition that PTSD with dissociation, mm-hmm. which is now a category, mm-hmm. is clearly different than PTSD without significant dissociation. We see that physiologically, that without dissociation, sort of response to traumatic stimuli are kind of hyperarousal, whereas uh, with dissociation, response to traumatic stimuli are hypoarousal, that is the person shuts down, Mm. heart rate drops, Uh, Skin conductance goes down. All the kind of measures of arousal actually go down. This is the freeze part. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And, of course, freezing is the mechanism that uh, young animals and people, you know, children adopt in the context they become frozen with fear. And that's uh, adaptive at some level, but it becomes a maladaptive uh, uh, adaptation so to speak over time to trauma mm-hmm. um, so many things qualify as trauma and it's very hard to quantify trauma in mm-hmm. um, and, and many ways or understand why something is necessarily trauma um, for this person but not necessarily a traumatic experience for that trauma so to a certain extent you have to accept Trauma as at face value, I think uh, mm-hmm. and respect somebody's trauma story mm-hmm. um but it's it's a very powerful induction of state that goes along with trauma, and then if particularly in in our longitudinal study of incest, our average victim was had um was abused once a week for one to two years mm-hmm. or once or twice a week for one to two years, somewhere around a hundred to two hundred. Um, molestations well that's very different than a single episode that leads to a whole different set of adaptions Mm -hmm. and then there's all other variables about what was done who did it to you um that sort of thing so so there's a lot of you know i think one of the things that experience i experienced working in the trauma field was people will say well what's a trauma disorder everybody's got trauma disorders everybody's got bad things that happen to them And, you know, statistically, everybody's got one or two. Um, There is a kind of a threshold effect, but also so many other things have to do with the way did you have – safety did you have supportive caregivers etc so that you know what may be traumatic for one person is not necessarily for another mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but we where we see in the dissociative disorders is this very early chronic trauma this is mm-hmm. always going on often associated with a kind of um you, you never know what that caretaker is going to do are they going to be nice to you or are they going to be n- nasty to you and so you're looking 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 trying to figure out what's going on and and you often see these kids who have dissociative disorder sort of switch in anticipation of what they think is going to happen so they bring mm-hmm. out another identity state that can take it so they'll have kind of superman identity states or protector of identity states mm-hmm. those sorts of things that they bring out
0: yeah yeah that's i'm glad, i like the way you explained it i mean obviously trauma is a multi-dimensional continuum thing it's 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 uh it's complicated it's a lot going on there's obviously resiliency factors there's obviously you know potentially traumatic events uh it's it is it is a, a tough tough network of things to kind of sift through a lot of the times of course there's wonderful people like yourself and and others that are, are have worked on that so i guess ask or, or answer this about <laughs> disassociative identity disorder um I get asked about this sometimes kind of almost casually and even within my colleagues in the field or whatever a, a few things here uh we can just kind of lay out I guess some of the uh general things first but so this is as if I'm if I'm correct it used to be multiple personality disorder i think they updated the term to dissociative identity disorder and Again, I'm not close to this literature, but I, I know there was question marks that it was pretty, pretty rare. It was hard to, to differential, whereas some people even deny that it's a real thing. It's like some people have denied that it even exists, um, you know. More than some people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. And I think it's it's it is extremely, again, from from the limited information I have on it, that it, it it's not it's rare. It doesn't happen. It's not like depression or anxiety or things like that. It's not as common as that, and in, in a in a diagnosable sense of the word. But I guess currently, I, I, again, I, I mean, I don't I don't stay with this literature. But you know, in twenty twenty three, like, what can we conclusively say at this point about dissociative identity disorder? You know, is it a real thing? Maybe some of the epidemiology rates, if you know it offhand, um, and then you can talk about some of the. The other things, such as people say, well, if people have that, and if it does exist, they all just have really extreme trauma. You know, is it possible to see someone with this dissociative identity disorder and they don't have any, you know, trauma in this kind of extreme sense? I guess some of the etiology is what I'm asking about how that comes to 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 uh, to fully present. Uh, yeah, just what are some of the, uh, the kind of overview of this?
1: Okay, um, well. Certainly, there's a lot of pushback about it, and I think the part of the problem is is that people are pushing back against a stereotype that exists on sort of the Hollywood. You know, the Sybil, the Three Faces of Eve. This is, you know, not representative, but most what most people think they know. About it is based on this kind of literature, the books, or uh, seeing the movies, or so, something like that. It's not really like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 kind of like a very extreme bipolar in the sense that this is a person flipping back and forth between different states of consciousness. These states are identity states as opposed to affective states. Um, they the getting to when. In my experience, and it's one of these things you can't experimentally test, but my experience, if the trauma occurs much after age six, you don't get a person fragmented into discrete identity states. You may get a sense of personality fragmentation like a borderline, but you don't get George and Nancy and Harriet and the dolphin or whatever kinds of things. This is a result of very extreme trauma, Repetitive trauma occurring in, you know, usually starting around age three, four, something like that. Um, hundreds and hundreds of episodes in which the child is in pain, terrified, whatever. It has to create sort of mental structures or states that will deal with this and, and uh, also kind of sequester it in memory. I mean, one of the advantages of not integrating is that you don't—you're know, not terrified all the time. If you can't remember what happened, all um, sorts of things. So, so that is particular. There's a lot of data supporting um, dissociative identity disorder. It's like found all over the world. Um, There are actually measures that are psychometrically as solid as the measures we use for depression or anxiety kinds of things. Uh, The profiles are really pretty much the same, whether you're looking at the population in rural Turkey or you're looking at, um, you know, middle class in in the U.S. You've got the amnesias, the depersonalizations, derealizations, uh, sort of the identity states kind of thing mm. so um there's also a, a interesting physiology there that is there are differences across states there are handedness differences there are some very profound speech differences that's what gives the sense of these identities being different people um i worked with a, um, a speech uh, phd person at the nih where um, we taped them and did spectrograms and we saw really some very dramatic changes had to do with the changes in the the location of the um vocal cords that Mm -hmm. they moved up and down in the strap muscles and and um so we could actually see these changes in in the speech we'd do we'd also get classic stutter in one personality and not in another Mm -hmm. um those sorts of things Uh, so there's There are real differences, but there are also continuities. If we look at things like habituation to a noxious stimuli, they habituate across personalities. So if you habituate one personality, that habituation goes across all the other identity states. So they habituate in the same way. But if you ask one identity state to learn a list of words and another one to learn a highly similar list of words, um, they keep them separate because they didn't hear or they're amnestic for that, whereas most people would get bleed through from one list to another mm. um, kinds of things. So we can demonstrate some tests in which they do better uh, than uh, your normal control. So there, there's something going on there, but it isn't the dramatic in you know, a mm. way it is. And part of what you're doing is trying to break down those barriers. Um and and generalize the information. And that's where a lot of the therapy comes in. Mm. Um, but even without, I mean, there the you asked about the epidemiology. So we um, tagged on to a large national study, um, and um, and of so supposedly representative. Americans, uh, not patent. It wasn't a clinical study, it was a a, a general population study. And we found about 4% of, of the US population reported. Dissociative, extreme dissociative experiences. We didn't diagnose them, but we we looked at, you know, are they reporting amnesias? Are they reporting disremembered behavior? Mm -hmm. Uh, These sorts of things. And so that was about 4%. Mm -hmm. If you stand at the emergency room door and do careful interviews you get upwards of 10 12 percent of people presenting for admission so it's Mm. much higher um than than people realize it's not as rare um Mm. as and it's often mistaken for schizophrenia Mm. or for bipolar disorder um, Mm. kinds of things
0: which is Mm. wow that's it's interesting i i again i haven't um i I think you're right i think you know, there's sometimes at a certain certain uh, places in time, certain Hollywoodizations of <laughs> of of things, especially in in the mental health field, are probably more harmful than than good. I mean, I, I still have clients that will come to me and mention "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." So I'm like, my goodness, that movie's been out 50 years. Like, <laughs> it's not like that anymore. <laughs> we don't even have inpatient hospitals like that anymore. Like, it's it's you know, it's kind of a extinct thing almost so it's it's interesting how things just kind of live within culture and things like that so it's it's interesting
1: um just, refer- just a note on that i I'm, uh-huh. i've worked with a couple of producers who are doing shows like netflix or something i cannot convince them not to use those sort of mm. those models um mm. and i say those are 50 60 year old models right you no know, right. a great deal more i'll take them down i'll show them the experimental mm. studies they want to go back to that yeah, model yeah. there's a it, perpetuation in the media yes. that they you know this is what they read this is what they understand this is what they're going to present
0: well, well and i think it's just that i mean there's the the sensational element of it that sells and i think that that's what people really kind of like and it's the the oohing and the eye i mean right it's i mean you know i don't know if you have I, i've worked in, uh, in forensic hospitals and people will you know talk about you know mind hunter or they'll talk about the zodiac movie or you know all these things and it's like it's not really like it's, it's not you know but people want to have you know the the kind of sensationalism of it so it's which is I, I think there's maybe a few things of exposure and people calling it, causing awareness for people but i think most of it is it's just if you have to do a lot of correcting about it i don't know how helpful it is but um so I want to ask uh, 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 towards the end here, you, it's a back part of the the book, you talk about various changes. So I want to talk about uh, peak experiences, meditation, even religious activities. But before that, I guess the question I have is is about this kind of um, I can't even say a renaissance for it. I mean, I think it's just kind of a uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of like blowing the dust off of the the research uh, studies from. 60 years ago and, and just, you know, trying to make up for lost time on, on psychedelic research, which is what we're doing now, which you mentioned, uh, some of the ketamine, you are doing psilocybin, uh, shrooms, uh, MDMA, uh, et cetera. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you make of, of this research? Let's put it that way. And then also potential clinical use for certain populations for trying to, um, Understand or have a—I uh, don't want to say curative, but a maybe therapeutic effect on various states uh, for folks that have things such as you know a PTSD or 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 other things that it's uh, I think been used for.
1: Right. Well, I think this is a, another example where we're learning that people can make very profound changes in a very short time and that they can have experiences that really reshape them and that personality is mutable in some sense and to some extent that is accessed by creating some really weird state that allows them to have a perspective that allows them to make a change that they couldn't see or make in other situations. I, one of the things I see as I look across kind of this literature, particularly the kind of drug-induced literature, is one, pretty much any drug that has powerful psychogenic or psychodynamic effects, or what am I trying to say, psycho-cognitive effects, can produce uh, differences in, in, in states. And so you can get this with um, sedatives, you can get it with psychedelics, you can get it with amphetamines, um, uh, So the drug itself isn't necessarily always that important. It's the idea that that drug produces some very profound state that's out of the individual's usual sort of experiences. So during World War II, there were studies like is, there was a lot of this work with uh, altered states for combat fatigue, and it was very successful. I mean, uh, the cure rates were around seventy percent, or at least the return to the front line rates were about 70%, whereas during World War I, it was miserable. I mean, sort of nobody got over shell shock or whatever they wanted to call it at that time. Um, whereas, uh, but, but so they looked at, you know, was hypnosis or sodium ametal better? It didn't matter. All it mattered was that you produced kind of an altered state in which you could work with that material that the the person brought up um, in in that context, and uh, it's the, so that wasn't unique to those states. Uh, I think psychedelics are one of the most powerful state altering kinds of tools that we have, and so it's not surprising that we're seeing um, effects in things like trauma and uh, PTSD and and uh, other other situations like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and so. Kind of along these lines, I mean, it's, if people find other types of, of ways of, of creating changes in, in various states, uh, such as through meditation or mindfulness, uh, sometimes religious activities. Um, I don't know if hypnosis is still used like it was, you know, 60, 70 years ago. But what do we make about some of these other alternative forms of how to change uh, various states that may be dysfunctional or maladaptive or whatever to try and have more uh, you know, functionality or to, to people to be more integrated?
1: Well, I think you see that there are a whole lot of different treatments advocated for PTSD, which says something, you know, that nothing works for everybody. So some people get the psychedelic drugs. Some people like to learn to play an instrument. Some people like to meditate. Some people like to take walks in the woods, um, but all of those are to some extent state altering experiences or places where you can go. Um, and people who, when they're deprived of that, they really experience that um, as, a, as a real difficulty. And if they can't get their walk in the woods or, you know, their evening run or whatever they do, it, it really sets them back. So I think, again, people will substitute states in in those situations like okay i feel like this is coming on i need to lift weights um uh, those kind of things um that i get myself in a completely different state uh like that or turn the record player up really loud and dance around the room or do something that just really changes my state of mind uh as a sort of intervention there now what to to do more of the therapy, you need to go into the state and kind of desensitize that and do the integrative work. But a lot of people have hit on the idea that, um, you know, you hear people say, this saved my life, you know, until I t- took up pottery or something, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was, you know, this saved my life. So they've learned to someplace where they can go that creates a more tranquil or peaceful or safe state for them.
0: Yeah so the 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 last question I have for you is uh how do we take all of this information there's a there's a variety of disciplines that are are kind of uh you know kind of moving in and out of here uh how do we have all this understanding of our states of being and and how do we pragmatically or in clinical or therapeutic settings or just for ourselves personally uh use that for our advantage to become you know more integrated better humans?
1: So that's the big question, you know, it really is. You know, um, there's an enormous amount of information on states. It's very poorly integrated. There's a sort of whole set of mathematical models of switching in states uh, from the cellular level up to the sort of whole person level. There's a lot of neurophysiology on states and brain studies on states, and there's a lot of work in the clinical areas, and then there's. There's the meditation and and, uh, things like that. And um, I I think, you know, it's kind of a, a mindset change. People have to really be thinking about states. We don't, most of these people are not thinking about states. The clinicians are not thinking about states. They're dealing with what they know. How to, how to do, but I think by thinking about states and particularly those levels, is it the state that I need to address? Do I need to address mm-hmm. a problem with the switching mechanism? Do I need to address a problem with the metacognition? Do I need to address a problem with a uh, attempt to manipulate states through maladaptive ways like gambling or substance abuse mm-hmm. uh, uh, kinds of things? That, that's where you get a, a more holistic kind of uh, intervention, but no, I—it's I, very <laughs> hard to get people to look at states. Though I often say, just listen, because people talk about states all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, I was in this state of mind or that mm-hmm. state of mind, or you know, and my goodness, we're always interested in what state of mind the president was in, <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, what was his state of mind about this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we talk about state of mind all the time. We just don't really think about the larger implications of that. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's it's there's a lot of work to still be done. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff you've done already is is uh, I think uh, is fantastic. Uh, Frank, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and giving me your time and energy. I I greatly appreciate it. I, I loved reading your your work and and uh talking with you for uh you know a good hour and a half here was on on this is uh just absolutely wonderful so uh i can't i can't say enough thanks for uh for giving me your time
1: well thank you i enjoyed it it was a fun conversation
0: yes yes absolutely